Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 2. Last week, I began working through the book of Joshua, starting just before the Israelites crossed the Jordan River and finishing up after they captured, pillaged, and burned the city of Jericho, killing everyone there save a single family that helped them earlier in the narrative. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm starting up in Joshua 7, when the Israelites returned to their sinful ways and what happened because of it. And with that, let's get started. The story picks up immediately after the destruction of Jericho. Recall that God had Joshua tell the people, that they could keep nothing from the city, and it was to be completely destroyed, except for the gold, silver, bronze, and iron, which were to be gathered and taken to the tabernacle. Apparently, one of the soldiers, Achan, ignored the order and kept some things for himself. And the reason it's here isn't because he got away with it, but that it came back to haunt the people. But that doesn't come about until the end of the chapter. First things first. Joshua sends spies to check out the city of Ai. As the crow flies, this city is about 10 miles, 16 kilometers, to the west-northwest of Jericho. It's one of the natural next places the Israelites would attack as part of their conquest of Canaan. The spies head out and shortly report back. When they make it back, They tell Joshua that the city is minimally defended and the small force should easily be able to take it. Joshua takes the spies' report to heart and sends a mere 3,000 men to the attack. But either the spies got the count wrong or the Israelites were out fault as they were driven back from the city, but not before losing 36 of their own. The remaining forces fled back to the Israelite camp. When they got there, everyone was dismayed, with the text telling us that their hearts melted and turned to water. Think of this as the grieving equivalent of the gnashing of teeth, a traditional phrase that shows how upset the people really were. Joshua was so upset to the point of tearing his clothes and falling on the ground before the ark, dismayed to the point that he asked God why he brought them across the Jordan only the lose to I. He's convinced the other Canaanite cities will hear of their loss and come to attack. God tells him to stand up, literally dust himself off, and be a man. If this were to happen today, he'd likely be told to man up, which is nothing more than a more economical way of saying the same thing. He then tells Joshua why they lost, the Israelites disobeyed his order not to take things from Jericho, though God doesn't name names. Nonetheless, he isn't happy that someone ignored his decree, and Joshua needs to figure out who did and do something about it. Fortunately for him, God gives him a plan. The next morning, he's to call the tribes forward one at a time, filing past Joshua. When the guilty party walks by, He will be consumed by fire, but not just the individual. Everything he has shall be consumed by fire, too. My interpretation of this is that his possessions, and more importantly his family, will be burned up. 
Joshua wakes up the next morning and begins to carry out the plan. Then, something a bit interesting. We're given a family tree, of sorts, that leads to the perpetrator, Achan. In his instructions, God told Joshua to have everyone file by according to their exact lineage. And for Achan, this was the tribe of Judah, the clan of the Zarahites, then the family of Zabdi, then the household of Carmi, whose son was Achan. But Achan wasn't consumed by fire. Somehow, as he walked by, Joshua knew it was him. Perhaps he had that guilty look my kids get when they do something, and for them it usually isn't severe enough to be consumed by fire, though that may merely be a matter of perspective. Back in the book of Joshua, Achan confesses, saying, I am the one who sinned against the Lord God of Israel. This is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and two hundred shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels. Then I coveted them and took them. They now lay hidden in the ground inside my tent, with the silver underneath. Meaning that it wasn't mere trinkets he took, but instead precious metals that should have ended up in the tabernacle. One other thing, the fact that silver was called out as being underneath. There are some who theorize that at that time, Silver was actually more valuable than gold. Back in the text, what he just admitted to was a serious theft. Just to validate what he confessed to, Joshua sends a few men to Achan's tent. And sure enough, the goods were there. The men bring the items back and spread them out before God and the world, at least the world of the Israelites, for all to see. The things that led to the loss at Ai the death of 36 soldiers, and the dismay of the people. I'm guessing at some point in this short timeline, Achan's heart melted and turned to water, along with that of his family. And we should all know by now that such a transgression won't go unpunished. But if not by being consumed by fire, then what? We don't have to wait long to find out the answer, as it's in the next paragraph. From the text. Joshua has Achan, his sons and daughters, along with the silver and gold, the mantle, and his livestock, which were oxen, donkeys, and sheep, everything, including his tent, and all that he had, probably every speck of everything Achan called his own. All of it was taken up to the Valley of Acre, though it wasn't called that at the time. This part of the text gives no indication what they called the valley then. And I'll pause here just for a second. Up to the valley. That's an unusual choice of words. Valleys tend to be downhill, but in this case, they traveled enough uphill for it to be noticed. I'm fairly certain the choice of these words was intentional and give credence to the story. Unpausing. Joshua addresses the offender, saying, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord is bringing trouble on you today. Then the punishment. All Israel stoned him to death. They then burned them with fire, cast stones on them, and raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Pausing again. 
And this is the same point I made in the last episode. The phrase, remains to this day, indicates that the book was written sometime after the events occurred. We just don't know how long after. I'm pausing. From this point forward, the place was known as the Valley of Acre, a derivative of the perp's name and a place I'll cover in the future. After the nation had executed the punishment, God's anger was quelled. And that's chapter 7. Now that all of that sin has been sorted out and dealt with, the Israelites can head back to Ai for a rematch, which is what they do in chapter 8. God again gives Joshua a plan, and it includes taking all of the fighting men up to Ai. In other words, learn a lesson from before and meet the city with an overwhelming force. God tells Joshua to treat Ai as they did Jericho, though this time they can keep the spoils and livestock for themselves. God does tell him, though, to ambush the city, with the obvious interpretation being not to march around it blowing their trumpets and shouting, as they had done at Jericho, but to sneak up. The next night, Joshua sends out some 30,000 soldiers. He tells the men, He shall lie in ambush against the city, behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you stay alert. I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. When they come out against us, as before, we shall flee from them. They will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, They are fleeing from us as before. While we flee from them, you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And when you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire, doing as the Lord has ordered. This is a brilliant plan that's known as a defensive feint trap, or a feigned retreat. Chinese military writer Sun Tzu wrote about it in the 6th century BC. The Spartans used it at the Battle of Thermopylae against the Persians. William the Conqueror employed it at the Battle of Hastings. And unfortunately, the Germans used it in World War II at the Battle of Kasserine Pass in Tunisia and numerous other examples throughout history. All of these, at least those that I could find, are after the Israelites used it. Offensive forces are usually on the lookout for such a feigned retreat, but given that the residents of Ai, are they Aiens? Either way, it was particularly easy for them to fall into such a trap, given their previous victory over the Israelites. As for this time, Joshua sends the larger force out to wait the advancing Ai forces, where the Israelite army hid themselves somewhere between Bethel and Ai which really narrows down the location, as these places are commonly believed to be only about three miles, five kilometers apart. Joshua, though, stayed behind, spending the night in the Israelite camp, which, if left alone, makes it sound like he wasn't participating in the fight. Thankfully, we're brought back to reality in the next sentence. Early the next morning, Joshua led the elders to a vantage point where they could see Ai. This included the warriors who were not part of the initial force. It may have even included all of the Israelite adults, or maybe even the children. 
the text is less than clear. These warriors drew near to the city, encamped on the north side, with a ravine between them and the city, meaning that while the residents of Ai might have been able to see them, they couldn't reach them. In reality, given what happened during the battle, the people of Ai didn't see them, and the ravine likely hid them. But the text does not explicitly say this, and you have to read into what's not said, and rely on the outcome as filling in many of the blanks. Joshua takes 5,000 of the 30,000 and sets the ambush to the west of the city. The text is very specific about what they did. Stationing the main encampment north of the city and its rear guard to the west of the city, with Joshua spending the night in the valley. When the king of Ai saw this, he and all of his people, the inhabitants of the city, hurried out early in the morning to the meeting place facing the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. Of course, he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. The trap was being sprung. At this point, Joshua, along with what's said to be all Israel, made it look like they were being beat, fleeing in the direction of the wilderness, and everyone in the city of Ai chased after them. Though it may not have been exactly everyone, as the next sentence tells us that the men of Ai, and Bethel too, chased after them, leaving the city open, possibly meaning the city's gates were like the proverbial barn door. Trap sprung. God then gives Joshua the next part of the plan, telling him to hold out his sword toward Ai. Of course, Joshua does, reminiscent of when Moses watched as the Israelites fought the Amalekites at Rephidim. In this case, as soon as Joshua stretched out his hand, the troops in ambush rose quickly from their hiding place and rushed forward. They entered the city took it, and immediately set it on fire. And you should know what happened. When the men of Ai looked back, the smoke of the city was rising to the sky. It was their hearts that melted that time. They'd been had, and they knew it, and they couldn't do anything about it. The text tells us that they were struck to the point that they had no power to flee this way or that, for the Israelites who fled into the wilderness turned around back against the pursuers. When Joshua and all of Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and that the smoke of the city was rising, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the Israelites who set the city on fire came out from the city. The people of Ai now weren't protected by the city's walls and were surrounded. No one survived or escaped, except the king of Ai, who was taken alive and brought before Joshua. The narrative of the battle wraps up with a summary. After the pursuers were annihilated, the Israelites returned to the burning city and attacked whoever remained, with Joshua holding up his arm outstretched with sword the whole time, echoing back to Moses. All total that day, all 12,000 residents of Ai were slaughtered, though it's unclear if this included anyone from Bethel. And this time, 
the people of Israel only took the livestock and booty that was allowed, as commanded by God and relayed through Joshua. The city was left in ruins, and as the text points out, it remains that way to this day. That phrase duly noted, again. As for the king, he was hanged on a tree, but only left there until evening, as instructed in Deuteronomy 21. At sunset, Joshua had his body taken down from the tree and thrown at the entrance of the gate of the city. Placed over top of it was a large pile of stones, which stands there to this day. That phrase is there again. After the battle, and at the end of the day, Joshua builds an altar of uncut stones at Mount Ebel, as Moses had instructed. On this, burnt offerings and sacrifices were made. He also wrote down the law on the stones. It was at this time that they carried out the full commandment from Moses in a renewal of the covenant. All Israel, alien as well as citizen, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark in front of the Levitical priest who carried the ark, half of the people in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Ebel. Afterward, Joshua read all of the words of the law, blessings and curses, according to all that is written in the Pentateuch. And that's chapter 8. Chapter 9 is the narrative recounting the trickery of the Gibeonites. I covered this in chapter 6, episode 35 of the podcast, released about a month ago. When I said the history was going to speed up due to previously covered people, places, and things popping up again, it's people like this that I had in mind. The quick refresher is that while the Israelites were encamped just west of the Jordan, and just after they had ransacked the cities of Jericho and Ai, many of the city-states of Canaan allied together against the Israelites. This included the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites, along with the probably generic term Canaanites, no specific mention of the Philistines though they could have been lumped in with the Canaanites. But the Gibeonites took a different tact. They sent a diplomatic delegation to the Israelites, who were still encamped at Gilgal. At one point in this part of the text, they're called Hivites, which is confusing and has been that way probably since it was first written down in that confusing manner. The Gibeonites claimed to have traveled far, and wanting to make a treaty with the Israelites, they claimed to have heard reports about their exodus from Egypt, how they defeated the Amorite kings Sihon and Og. Then they lay it on thick, saying that their elders and all the inhabitants of their country asked them to seek peace. They offer up their bread, claiming it came fresh from the oven, but now is moldy. Their wineskins were new when they filled them, and now they are so old they've burst. Their garments and sandals are worn out from the very long journey. The Israelites bought it without asking God what to do. Joshua signed a treaty with them, guaranteeing their lives. Then the leaders of the congregation of Israelites swore an oath. It only took three days for the story to unravel. At that time, the rumor mill finally caught up with the Gibeonites, 
With the Israelites learning, they were merely neighbors, not travelers from a far distance. It seems the Israelites were far too willing to believe the tale they were told. Logically speaking, why would a far-off land seek a treaty with recent arrivals? Wait until they're close enough that it matters. The other implication is that the Israelites should have asked God what to do. Now they're in a bit of a bind, with the law and oaths being as it is. To confirm the rumors, the Israelites sent an expedition who were able to reach the Gibeonites' city within three days, learning that the Gibeonites not only controlled the city of Gibeon, but also Shevarah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. More places to cover later, though I think I've touched on Beeroth before, but I'll confirm in due time. At this point, the Israelites had a decision to make. Attack them for deceiving, but that would be a violation of their oath. Or let it go. They decided to let it go. At least somewhat. Instead, they put them to work as the hewers of wood and drawers of water for the Israelites. And again, the text is less than clear. Does this mean they were enslaved? Joshua answers that in the next paragraph when he addresses them. Really, he curses them and tells them they are forever enslaved to the Israelites. Surprisingly, when the Gibeonites answer, they are resigned to their fate, probably figuring it was better than being annihilated. And the chapter ends with what's becoming a common refrain, that the Gibeonites remain the hewers of wood and drawers of water to this day. On to chapter 10 which recounts when the sun stood still in the sky. This part of the Old Testament narrative is chock full of stories that have been retold for thousands of years. So it goes with the historical books. Word of the Israelites' victories and conquests was getting around, this time to King Adonisic of Jerusalem, who also heard that the Gibeonites flat-out surrendered without a fight. The king of Jerusalem allied with his counterparts in Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, all described as Amorite kings, giving me much to cover later. Now, they didn't directly take on the Israelites, though, instead attacking the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites sent an SOS to the Israelites, asking for help, and relying on that they were now the servants of the Israelites. Joshua led his troops up from their camp at Gilgal, marching all night to the fight. According to the text, the Israelites surprised the allied Amorite armies, who panicked and were slaughtered. But not everyone was killed, as the survivors beat a hasty retreat. They fled down the slope of Beth Huron, where God caused an avalanche of heavy stones to fall on them or it could have been hailstones, depending on the translation and the particular spot in the text. Either way, more were killed by falling objects than by the sharp blade of an Israelite sword. Then, one of the more interesting passages in the whole of the Bible, for two reasons. To quote, Joshua spoke to the Lord, and he said in the sight of Israel, 
sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon, in the valley of Ijalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in mid-heaven, and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since, when the Lord heeded a human voice, for the Lord fought for Israel. Obviously, the sun standing still is one of the more interesting bits, and the other is the reference to the book of Jasher. Like the book of the Wars of the Lord I covered in chapter 6, episode 37, the book of Jasher has been lost to history. I'll cover the little known about it in the near future. The battle wasn't quite done as many of the Amorites escaped, including their kings who hid in a cave at Makeda. Add that place to the list. The Israelites figured out they were hiding there and rolled a stone in front of it, entrapping the kings. While this was happening, the Israelites continued chasing the fleeing, now leaderless, Amorites. The kings were pulled from the cave, executed, and their bodies hanged from a tree until the evening. As the sun set, of course, after it had been out for probably 36 hours, the king's bodies were removed from the trees and thrown back into the cave, with the stone once again being rolled in front of it. They never arose from this, as they were on the wrong side of the one in control and the stone remains there to this day. The rest of chapter 10 is dense with all of the cities and nations the Israelites fought, so much that there's not enough time in this episode to give it its due. Translation, this is a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue working through the book of Joshua. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there... Be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.